It's Wednesday, May 30th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. And what people don't know about Full Global Headquarters is that on the roof of this building, we have our own version of the bat signal. And when there's economic trouble in Europe, I go up to the roof and I turn on the bat signal. And then Tim Hansen shows up in the studio to explain what in the world is going on. So Tim Hansen is joining me here. <laughs> I'm not sure I ever do a good job of explaining what is going on because I'm not sure I know. I, I, but thank you. We're, yeah. I'm glad to be the go-to source when there's calamity in Europe. <laughs> not general calamity, <laughs> economic calamity. Um, and, and we're going to talk about that. We're also going to get to uh, uh, sporting goods, which uh, is, is becoming a more interesting industry. For investors, we'll get to that. Let's let's start though with Italy, and it's been a while. Longtime listeners of this podcast, um, uh, of which there are dozens, dozens. There are dozens. <laughs> I mean, I, I was actually thinking about this this morning when we started. We started doing market foolery in 2011, and there were a good number of times those first couple of years where we were talking a lot about Greece. Yeah. Um, and obviously, a couple of years ago, it was Brexit. Uh-huh. Um, and yesterday, we did a couple episodes on um, Spanish unemployment when it was up at like 25, 28 yeah. percent. Yeah, those were good ones. Um, well, I mean, <laughs> not for the, the. It's down to 16 now in Spain. Not for the unemployed in Spain, but in terms of a, a topic of conversation yeah, for this yeah. podcast, sure. Um, yesterday, Italian bonds had their worst day basically ever. Um, now I don't own Italian bonds, so I'm. Congratulations! I, it was it was it was less of a concern for me, but this is the headline that that Italy may, because of political upheaval, may in fact be considering leaving the EU in the way that Great Britain uh, had their vote a couple of years mm-hmm. ago. When you look at this situation, I guess one of my top two or three questions is. How big a danger is this for investors in the United States who, like me, don't own Italian bonds? Is this something that's just sort of, well, that's over there and that's not really going to affect my investments? Or is there a danger? I, I mean, it, it depends. It depends on how it plays out. Um, because what's interesting, I think, about the situation in Italy now vis-a-vis what we saw in Greece a few years ago, is that it, in some ways it's more of a, a political challenge than it is an economic challenge. You know, the blueprint is there for how to, how to bail out a country that's struggling with a debt burden. Um, you know, the ECB has, has, brought that, has, has brought that force to bear when it comes to repurchasing bonds and keeping interest rates low. Um, what's interesting about this in Italy is that um, what happened was the, the president has pre- prevented a coalition government from from um, a, a right-left coalition, the Five Star Movement and the League, who are both opposed to European integration, from from appointing from taking office and from appointing a Eurosceptic as the finance minister, pretty much spitting in the eye of Italian voters and saying, no, 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 you know, we don't care what you think, voting democracy. We're just going to keep our technocrats in charge, and it'll be cool. And yet, every time they're going to have to have another election, and every time they've had these elections, the number of people voting for the Five Star Movement and voting for the League has increased. So I don't know what they think they're going to get on the other side to keep this together, because ultimately, if that government decides that they want to try to pull out of the EU in the same way that Britain voted to, um, it poses a real challenge for the European Union at that point. 
um, because what happens to those bonds um, uh, if you apply the EU, they're no, you no longer use euros, right? So they would get re-denominated in Italian new lira, and then, or they might get defaulted on. This is a really long-winded answer, by the way. Um, it's not a simple situation. That's fine. <laughs> and and in that case, the bonds are probably worth a lot less than their face value. And in the event that the bonds are worth are worth a lot less than their face value, then all the banks in Europe and some in the United States who hold those bonds as capital on their balance sheets all of a sudden have big holes blown in their balance sheets. And that's, you're back at a banking crisis. And what happens in a banking crisis? Equity um, is used to shore up the balance sheet, which means stockholders lose a lot of money. Um, so if you have exposure to global indexes, if you own shares of banks that have exposure to Italian bonds, if it just sets off general contagion in the financial system, um, those would always have those would all be scenarios where it would have negative effects for uh, U.S. investors. Okay, so I don't own Italian bonds, but I do have an S and P 500 index fund, which you know has got some U.S. banks in there, and they've got probably some level of exposure. Probably. I mean, good luck explaining a large U.S. bank balance sheet. I mean, they'll probably all deny they own Italian bonds, but they probably have something on there. You know, You're saying if I call up Brian Moynihan at Bank of America or Jamie Dimon and just say, guys, just level with me and all other investors, what's your exposure to Italian bonds? Yeah. They're not necessarily... They would, I don't, they'd have to make a couple phone calls to probably figure out the gross exposure. Um, I mean, the, the banks that are screwed are the Italian banks themselves. Because they own a ton of Italian of Italian bonds, and they're all trading at fractions of book value right now. The big ones are like three point three times book, um, which is really cheap relative to the banking global banking multiple average. Um, so I mean, I saw a couple articles yesterday making the claim that now is the time to be buying Italian banks because because this is more of a political crisis than it is a economic crisis. It'll get sorted out. The bonds won't go bad. The banks will be worth uh, maybe still less than book, but not so much less than book, and, and you'll double your money. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard. I mean, populism's not going away. Well, no. And populism's had a nice 10 year run. <laughs> yes. And as we look at any kind of trend, whether it's uh, an economic trend or, in the case of Italian politics, a voting trend. You know, as you said, for the for the people who are currently the technocrats who are currently in power, where do you think, <laughs> where do you think the next ele- election is going to go, and what do you think that's going to do to your power base? Well, and I think I think the other question, which we've been asking for years, is what like what is the point of the European Union? Is it is it integration or is it not? Because this like half integration, three quarters integration that they're trying to. To, to pursue it doesn't seem to be working out that well for for people. Um, you know, for example, you're in the European Union, but there is no such thing as a European Union bond, right? That, I mean, it, it's like there are Greek bonds. That seems odd. And there are German bonds, but the Germans don't want to commingle their bonds with the Greek bonds. So it's like, and you can understand why the Germans <laughs> don't want to do that. Our bonds are just fine. <laughs> you know, because the German bonds are. More creditworthy, they carry lower interest rates and so on and so forth, and and they don't want to be on the hook for bailing out the Greeks or the Italians or the Spanish. Um, but if you don't want to be on the hook for helping your compatriots when they're in trouble, why are you compatriots? 
I mean, it's a it's a open question. I mean, I know there are, obviously there are benefits to European integration in terms of ease of travel, more commerce, trade, and so on and so forth. But some of these important tractable issues um, still haven't been solved for 25 years later. All right, let's move on uh, closer to home. Uh, some earnings from Dick's Sporting Goods. First quarter profits higher than expected. They raised guidance. Shares of Dick's Sporting Goods up 23 percent this morning. Bam! Don't call it a comeback. <laughs> <laughs> They've been here for years. Wow. I think they're still, the two year chart is not so kind. Yes, that's true. Although, it, I mean, it, I, one of the things I find interesting about this is that it, it does, um, it's it, obviously a different company, but it seems like what's happening with Dick's Sporting Goods sort of rhymes with what's, what happened last week with Foot Locker, with just sort of like. What happened to Foot Locker? I didn't see uh, that. Basically, a smaller version of this, like, sli- like slightly better. Slightly better than expected. Okay. Um, and in the case of both of those retailers, um, I have to believe that if you're Nike and Adidas and Under Armour, part of you is rooting for them to do well because mm. when Sports Authority went under, you know, every for all the talk of boy, you know, Nike's really building up their e-commerce, and they are. Yeah. But they didn't build it up to the point where Sports Authority goes out of business. And Nike doesn't miss a beat because their e-commerce platform is so strong. No, Nike had to have a write-down because of the inventory that they had in Sports Authority. And so did, by the way, Under Armour, as every Under Armour shareholder <laughs> like me is painfully aware of. You know, better to write that stuff down than try to pretend that it's not imperiled, which a lot of companies do. Um, yeah, no, I mean, this is this is an interesting report um, because you know Dix was down 50% over the last two years. Um, expectations were pretty diminished um, around around the stock because of you know the move to online commerce. Um, they'd had some margin erosion. Um, they'd additionally you know announced in I think it was February that they weren't going to be selling assault rifles anymore, um, which I know people thought was going to have a negative effect on their sales. So the stock was pretty heavily shorted, and they came back with a report that um, was okay and it beat expectations and they raised their expectations for the year. And I think the people who were shorting the stock are getting out. So you're probably seeing what's called a Short squeeze, where a lot of people who are getting hit hard on their leverage short positions are trying to buy those back, and that's causing the stock to go up, you know, in a in a very um, pronounced manner. But you know, ultimately, um, for 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 Dix, I, I, it's a tough it's a tough business for those sporting goods stores, and as it is for a lot of uh, bricks and mortar retail operations who need to compete with not only the Amazons of the world, but with their Vendors, the Nikes, Under Armour's, and Adidas's, all going direct to consumer as well. Um, I mean, you mentioned the the two year chart for Dick's Sporting Good, not so good. Uh, similarly, with Under Armour, the two year chart not very good. Although the last six months, Under Armour has started to bounce back. I mean, it's up about fifty percent now. That's obviously off of a, a pretty ugly low. Yeah. Um, but that that seems like it's bouncing back. Um, and if they can, if they can have uh, at least operationally, another six months like they've had over the past six months, and if Kevin Plank can manage to keep his executive team around him for, I don't know, let's just call it the entire calendar year. <laughs> that seems it seems like that would also be a win. Um, this this comes uh, right as we are are gearing up for the World Cup. Yes, um, I saw this morning that um, before the World Cup has even been played, thirty two teams in the World Cup. Um, Adidas already has claimed a, a small victory over Nike because Adidas is outfitting 12 of the nations in the World Cup. 
uh, Nike is uh, outfitting 10. <laughs> um, before we get to the World Cup proper, um, it seems like this is both an opportunity and a challenge for these types of companies because obviously it's great exposure for for I mean lesser for Under Armour but much more so for Adidas and Nike. It's a, it's great exposure opportunities. It's also a marketing spend. Like yeah. they they they're almost always spending more money and sometimes it pays off and sometimes it doesn't. And I'm wondering if you if you have any strong feelings you know about uh, the timing of sort of big Global sporting events, whether it's the World Cup or the Olympics, and companies like Nike and Adidas. Well, they definitely get a bump from them. I mean, you definitely see sales increase when you know when the last World Cup was held. Um, you know, jersey sales and contributed to meaningful growth in Europe at a time when the European economy was struggling, and you, you can see that show up in Nike and Adidas's results. Um, I mean, they're, I think they're good opportunities. You know, I think the company that benefits most is going to be the one. Where if you get the sponsor, the team that wins it, those fans all like to get the new the new kit. Um, but you know, as an investor, you got to make sure to remember when those events happen, so that when you're analyzing companies, you make apples to apples comparisons. <laughs> you don't want to forget there was a World Cup year and then panic the next year when sales are down. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Exactly. Um, I was looking at the odds. I don't know. The, do you have a uh, United States? Not, not in it. Not in the World Cup. Not in the World Cup. This um, Disappointing. Uh, based on the uh, the site I was looking at this morning, it looks like Brazil and Germany uh, are sort of the co-favorites right now in the betting world. Yeah. Followed by Spain and France, and then Argentina, Belgium, England. Um, Germany. Germany is a good team. Uh, they're fun to watch. They got a lot of depth. They do a high pressing style, Gegenpressen, pressing, which is actually the style of defense I teach my. Um, Seven-year-old boys team. <laughs> do you Relentless tell, pressure on the ball. Do you tell that? Do you say like, "Look, this is this is not." I did. I did is, send do out. Do you differentiate the type of pressing? I did. I did send out a somewhat obscure, uh, <laughs> translated German German language article to the parents on the team, explaining what we were going to be doing this year. It's worked out pretty well. Um, and you know, it, it was really. Wait, hold on. What was the response uh, to that email? I, there, there was no response. But, <laughs> but you know, here's. The, at risk of deviating on a tangent. Over-communicate. Um, well, so I, my my main goal in coaching the kids' team is to not have any parents, is not to deal with any meddling, troublesome parents. And so the, the, the master plan behind sending out an article like that, and I also do a lot of juggling with the ball like at the first practice as the kids are showing up, is to pretty much demonstrate <laughs> I know significantly more than any of you <laughs> about what we're doing here, and so don't even talk. Just don't talk to me. And it works because nobody responded to the email. Nobody argued with it. You know, just, I like nobody that. suggested I do something else during the games. Good um, strategy. But Germany's got the depth. So it was an interesting article yesterday about the World Cup that a lot of the World Cup teams don't get to practice together a lot. Um, it's it's going to be hot. They've already played long club seasons, so most of the teams are probably going to be playing a more drop back style of sort of absorbing pressure and then trying to counterattack. Whereas Germany has the depth to sort of play this more relentless pressuring attack, which could be an advantage. An advantage for them, you know. Brazil obviously has a lot of wonderful individual contributors. Um, I think, you know, if if it, if the, the you know, I would say the dark horse there uh, is Belgium, which if they're going to make a run, this is the year because they've got uh, Lukaku, uh, Eden Hazard, Kevin De Bruyne. I like this is their golden generation. If they're going to do it, this is the year to do it. So uh, they'll be motivated, I suspect. Uh, as I mentioned yesterday, we are off tomorrow. It's a short week for us because we've got uh, Fool Fest, which is our two-day investing event here 
in Alexandria. Uh, we're going to be back on Monday. And again, it gives you a great chance to check out other Motley Fool podcasts if you haven't already, uh, like Industry Focus, like David Gardner's uh, Rule Breaker Investing, Motley Fool Answers. Uh, you can find them anywhere you find podcasts. You're presenting at Fool Fest. Yep. Give me a sneak preview of coming attractions. What are you going to be talking about? Yeah, so we'll be uh, presenting uh, the methodology and some of the early findings around um, some additional work we're doing to create Fool stock indexes. Um, so right now we're working. Uh, we have the Fool 100, which is out and live in the world and being published. Um, and then we're currently working on something we call Total Fool, which is um, like the total stock market index, a representation of all the stocks the Fool likes, regardless of market cap, industry, so on and so forth. And once we have Total Fool. Um, all ready to go. We can break total fool up into like fool small cap or fool biotech or fool growth. They're just little sub indices off the big mother index. Um, so we'll, we'll be presenting to people who are interested about how the methodology we're using to go about creating total fool, um, where we set thresholds for inclusion, how we do rebalancing. Um, you know, a, a lot of the data we get comes out of our fool IQ database. We've done a lot of work figuring out um, why things. Move around in that database between being high conviction or not high conviction. You know, can we set those thresholds in such a way that we maintain all the performance and we get lower turnover and so on and so forth? So, it's a little bit of a wonky presentation, but hopefully people will find it interesting and, and a little bit fun. What's the uh, within the full 100 index? What's the exposure to Italian bonds? I'll have to make a couple phone calls about that. <laughs> probably very, probably limited because we're mostly technology and consumer, not a lot of financials. Tim Hansen, thanks for being here. Thank you, sir. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Forward. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.